So I think you guys have maybe noticed by now that I like to begin sermons with a question. I like to ask you guys questions. There, I did it again. I asked you guys another question. Did you notice that that was a question? It's another question. You know, are you wondering why I'm asking so many questions? Am I just going to keep asking questions all morning? Will I stop? Okay, is that enough with the questions? That's another question. Okay, okay. No more questions. But you know what? I can't promise that. I can't promise that because questions, friends, are a great communication tool. They really are. And Jesus, Jesus, the greatest communicator of all time, he asked a lot of questions. There's in the neighborhood of 307 or so questions recorded in the New Testament. So why did Jesus ask so many questions? That's another question. Well, very often we ask questions in order to get information, right? We ask questions for which we do not have an answer. Maybe it's something simple as, you know, what time is it? Or my wife loves when I begin my questions with, do you know where my fill-in-the-blank is, right? Guys, am I the only unorganized one? But we know that can't be true of Jesus because we know that he is omniscient. We know that Jesus knows everything. In fact, he is the source of all knowledge. So he already knows the answer to any question that he might ask. Now, sometimes questions can be tricky. And there may not be a good answer. There may not be a correct answer. Say when your spouse says, Honey, do I look fat in this? Be careful. Be careful because there is no good answer. It could be a trap. But you know, Jesus never asked any questions that didn't have a good answer. He was never trying to trick anyone per se. Jesus used questions masterfully. He was acutely aware of everything that was going on around him, and he asked questions accordingly. Very often, Jesus would answer a question with a question. In fact, of the 183 questions that he was asked in the New Testament, he only answers three of those directly. The rest he actually answers with another question. See, Jesus had great purpose in the questions that he asked. He used them to provoke thought in people, to get people thinking. He used them to draw them out, to engage them in conversation. He used questions to confer dignity upon them. But most importantly, Jesus used questions to lead people to a deeper understanding of God, the world, of others, and a deeper understanding of one's self. 
So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at some of the questions that Jesus asked. We're beginning a series of messages entitled, Questions Jesus Asked. And yes, Jesus asked these questions some 2,000 years ago, but friends, they are questions that we must wrestle with today. And as we ponder and answer these questions for ourselves, our goal will be to better know who God is, what we believe about him, and what he's doing in the world. Now, this week we begin with arguably the most important question of all. In fact, how we answer this question will influence every other question that we're asked. The question that Jesus asked his disciples who do you say I am? And friends, in a culture, in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to the gospel, more and more hostile to absolute truth, friends, every church, every pastor, every congregant, every person needs to know without doubt where they stand on this question. Because it has eternal consequences. Our answer will determine where we spend eternity. And it is a question that every single one of us must answer. So if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible and you want to take that one home... Feel free, that's our gift to you. We have more. But Mark chapter 8. And we know that this story is an important one because it does contain this question, but we also know it's important because it's included in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they each have a version of this story where Jesus asks this incredible question. Now, I chose Mark's version purposefully because it's a pivotal passage in Mark's account of the life of Jesus. We find it almost exactly in the center of Mark's gospel. And everything that we've read up to this point, the first seven and a half chapters, have been focused on Jesus' baptism and his ministry. In those first seven and a half chapters, we see accounts of his teaching. We see him healing the sick and doing all kinds of other miracles. We see him calm the storm. We see him feed the crowd twice, once 5,000, another time 4,000. We've seen his authority over demons as he casts them out. And we've seen his popularity grow because there were crowds now following Jesus, mainly because of his healing, but also because of his teaching. But see, after this passage, the emphasis changes in Mark's account. He spends the next seven chapters focusing our attention on Jesus fulfilling his ministry, making it clear the reason that he came. And in the passage that we look at today, Jesus gives his disciples a glimpse into that future, the suffering, the death. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, so... Let's start at verse 27. 
Mark writes this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So up to this point, Jesus has been working in and around the area of Galilee. And Galilee was a pretty friendly area. It was mostly Jewish settlements. So his healings, his teachings, they were for the most part well-received. And he had a following around the area of Galilee. But now what Jesus does is he takes his disciples into this pagan area. Pagan area called Caesarea Philippi. And the villages there, they're more Greek and Roman as opposed to the Jewish settlements that we see in the, in the area of Galilee. And really it's, it's, it's kind of enemy territory, if you will. And this signals a major shift and a turning point in Jesus' ministry because from here, from Caesarea Philippi, he will begin his journey southward toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And on the way, Jesus asks his disciples this setup question. This is a setup question. Who do people say I am? And, and, and Jesus is he's, he's making a point here. He knows that there's really kind of two types of leadership, right? There's one type of leadership that is by public consensus, by opinion, and the other is leading by conviction. We see this on display in politics all the time, right? It seems like nobody wants to make a decision until we determine what the public consensus is, right? We take a poll, and then we act based on that poll, on what everybody thinks, and what we get then is what we see in the world today, political correctness and what's referred to as pluralistic compromise. Compromise. That's what you get when you lead by public consensus as opposed to leading by conviction. Conviction based on the existence of absolute truth, based on what is right and what is wrong. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to draw out here. Now, unfortunately, friends, we have seen some of this creep into the church as well, right? Decisions made by consensus. And the result is we see pluralistic compromise in churches and in denominations. Churches that lead by consensus, they teach what people want to hear. Churches that lead by conviction teach people what they need, and that is the truth. The truth, and nothing but the truth. And this very well may be why Jesus took his disciples into this pagan city. You know, Caesarea Philippi had many temples, many temples honoring many different gods. It was a polytheistic society. And the largest temple, in fact, was to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That's what the Roman citizens were actually required to say. They were required to show their allegiance by proclaiming this formally out loud. Caesar is Lord. And it's against this backdrop 
that Jesus asks, what is the popular opinion about me? Now, it's not like he didn't know. But how do the disciples respond? Well, we see it in verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Classic case of public opinion, of, of, of consensus. And friends, let's be honest, not much has changed to this very day, right? There's still much divided opinion about who this man Jesus is. And we still hear these words, oh, some say... Because people, even, even other religions say, yeah, you know, this guy Jesus, he existed. Can't refute that. It's, it's a fact. But, you know, he was really just a good guy that treated people well. Oh, yeah, he was a good teacher. Taught people to love one another and kind of nice stuff like that. And there are some who say, yes, yes, he was a prophet. But certainly nothing more than that. <laughs> he wasn't the son of God. He was just a really good guy. Public consensus, public opinion, which, friends, if we follow, we understand that it leads us right into that pluralistic compromise that we talked about before. And it's exactly what we see in the world today. The world today, pluralism, pluralism tells you that there's more than one way to God. There's many ways to God. Pluralism tells you that all religions are equally valid. It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Just be a good person and you'll be fine. And friends, I I'm telling you, I really believe that is why Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He's saying, look around, look around. The enemy says there are many ways. So Jesus asks about the public opinion. He hears their response. And then he asks the question. The beginning of verse 29, he says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? And there's so much that we miss from the original Greek language, because in the original Greek, the, the you there is emphatic. It's emphatic. Who do you say I am? You know, it's interesting to know what others are saying about Jesus. It's interesting to know what the public opinion is. But what is most important to Jesus is who do you say he is? It's a question of our time. It is a question of personal conviction. And again, when we look at the Greek language, not only is the original Greek emphatic, but that you is plural. It's plural. It's addressed to the entire group of disciples that are standing there. But friends, the plurality goes far beyond that because Jesus is asking us this question today. Who do you Say, I am. And uh, there's something else that we need to be acutely aware of. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't ask what we think. He doesn't say, who do you think I am? He doesn't even ask, who do you believe I am? He says, who do you say 
I am? What is your personal testimony? What, what, what is it? Are you ready to confess aloud that Jesus is Lord? That's what he's asking. And as we read on, we see Peter. Oh, I love this guy. You know, he just jumps in. And he answers for the group at the end of verse 29. He says, you are the Messiah. And again, there's something that we miss in the original Greek because, again, the you is emphatic. But this time it's singular. It's emphatic, but it's singular. So what Peter is saying is, you and you alone are the Messiah. Sounds like Peter's starting to get it, right? Yeah, but wait. The original Greek is, is Christos, so it's probably better translated, you are the Christ. But either way, either way, Peter is spot on. But you know, this could be very easily misunderstood. See, the people of that day, yes, they were looking for the Messiah, right? But they were looking for a Messiah who would be a conquering hero. They were looking for a Messiah that was a warrior, that would set them free from the tyranny of the Romans. And that's why Jesus says in verse 30, you know, don't tell anybody about me. Because people get the wrong impression when you say Messiah. They have an incorrect expectation. And then at the beginning of verse 31, Jesus begins to share with them the true reason that he came. It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. So, what Jesus here is doing is he is correcting the messianic expectations of the people, correcting their expectation of this conquering hero. And he's probably correcting the disciples as well by telling them what must happen. And if they've been paying attention, they would have realized that Jesus' words from this passage here Echo what is written about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. That he must die. That he must rise again. Now friends, we know, we know that Jesus, the Messiah, will one day come as the warrior. Someday he will come as the conquering hero. That's described in the book of Revelation. But this time, ah, this time he came to save us from our sins. Even more necessary than any rescue from political oppression that you could imagine. Then in verse 32 and 33, we see this really interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter. You know, a minute ago we thought Peter's kind of getting it, and now we see that he really isn't. Because Mark writes... He, meaning Jesus, spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter hears Jesus say what must happen. He says, no. In fact, Matthew gives us a little bit more insight into what Peter says. He says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And I just want to make clear that Jesus isn't referring to Peter as Satan. No, it's merely Peter's thought and not himself personally that Jesus rejects as satanic. And honestly, honestly, Peter here seems to be the victim of popular opinion, right? The victim of consensus that the Messiah, the Messiah would come as this victorious warrior. Not to be rejected, suffer, and be killed. It's just a perfect example of how a sincere heart, coupled with man's thinking, coupled with public opinion, can lead people astray. Well, let's get back to this question, because this is, this is why we're here today, right? Jesus says, who do you say I am. So how do we answer that? You know, if, if someone stopped you on the street and asked you that question, what would you say? And we can't just poll the masses, right? We can't just take a poll and go along with the public opinion because we've seen that consensus cannot be trusted. It cannot be trusted and it can lead us down the wrong path. You know, remember, our tolerant culture tells us that there are many ways to God. We can't listen to public opinion. We can't listen to the culture. No, our job, friends, is to stay true to the truth of Scripture. We cannot and we will not compromise doctrine. You know, in an age where even the church is bowing to the whims of the masses, we must shine the light of truth as laid out by the holy and inspired word of God. You know, Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that these days were coming. And these war this warning is for us as well. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead, to suit their own desires, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I missed a part of it there. I'm sorry. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So our answer, friends, lies within. To know who Jesus is, how to answer this question, we look to his word. You know, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, I got to leave. I got to go now. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And he says, 
you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, you know, love this guy. He's a little confused. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't that just an incredible statement? Isn't that just a mind-blowing statement? I want us to notice here, friends, that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I am a way. No, he says, I am the way, the only way. Nor does he promise to teach us the truth. He says he is the truth. And he doesn't offer us the secrets to life. He says he is the life. That's who Jesus is. Our only hope of being reconciled to the perfectly holy God of creation. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. You know, Mark puts it right up front, the very first verse of his gospel. It says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In the very middle of his gospel, we see this this confession by Peter that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And near the end of Mark's gospel, he purposefully records an interesting interaction between Jesus and the high priest. As Jesus faces his first trial in front of the Sanhedrin, he's asked by the high priest, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? To which Jesus says, I am. I am. One of only three questions that Jesus answered Directly, I am. Mark wants us to know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus wants us to know exactly who he is. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do people say he is? You know, again, a really good guy, a teacher, a prophet, These things are still being said about Jesus today, but that doesn't matter, right? Public opinion, consensus, that doesn't matter. What matters is who do you say he is? It matters in this life. And friends, make no mistake, we will all stand one day before the perfectly holy and perfectly righteous judge, and we will answer What did you do with my son? That's what God's going to ask you, right? You know that, right? What did you do with my son? He's not going to ask, how much money did you give to the church or to charity? He's not going to ask how many old ladies you helped across the street. He's not going to ask how many Sunday school school classes you taught. He's not going to ask how many sermons you preached. He's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? Who do you say he is? You know, Paul gives us some great advice in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's the way. That's the only way. Jesus. So are we, are we ready to confess the name of Jesus to the world? You notice that's another question? Are we ready to say Jesus is Lord? You know, in a world that tells us over and over again that, you know, Christianity is just too narrow. There's, there's, there's many ways to God. May we stand firm in the truth. May we cling to what we know by the word of God. You know, Peter stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, facing uh, persecution, facing punishment, facing prison, and filled with the Holy Spirit. He said this, he said, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Friends, I pray that that would be our confession. Who do you say Jesus is? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and praise you and thank you. Lord, as we are challenged by popular opinion, challenged by what people think. May we stand true based on your holy word, Lord, and nothing else. And may we, as Peter, be prepared, no matter what we face, to confess and to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, to the glory of God the Father. Pour your spirit out on us, Lord, and bless us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.